0: Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our way through the book of Acts. While you're turning there, I want to um, add an, another announcement to what Will has already said. If you are on our email uh, list, then you uh, should have gotten an email from us yesterday. Um, if you didn't get an email from us yesterday, that means you are not on our email list. It's very easy to get on that um, Just email uh assistant at tcpca.org and ask to be put on there, and they can put it on there. But uh, most of you probably did get an email from us yesterday that the investigation that started um, almost a year ago into past misconduct um, from a pastor of this church um, that took place over a decade ago um, has been complete, and um, I have written a public statement very similar to the one I wrote at the beginning of the investigation um and in that statement is a link to the findings of that investigation and so um I I don't have much to say outside of what what I what I already said in that statement um except to ask for your prayers um it is it's been it's been um a long journey it's taken long took longer than we thought it would and and um more people coming forward with stories, and so just, just pray for healing. Uh, I know many of you have no idea who um, this pastor was that was here um, and doing this abuse, and uh, many of you um, were not a part of a congregation anyway at that time. Some of you were, but regardless, this is still our church, this is still our history, so just be praying uh, for God's healing and redemption and this, specifically for uh, the victims, those who uh, were hurt, and um, for the family of Brad, um, I've been in regular contact with Brad's family, um, his, his, um, Leslie, his wife, and um, they have a very good perspective on this, they're very thankful for the way that we've handled this, um, they are joining us in, in kind of the pain of this, and also in, in a desire for justice, so pray for the victims, pray uh, for, uh, for the family, And then you'll notice, if you read the report, there is one specific application that I need to make you aware of. Um, Grace recommended, there are six things that they recommended for us to do. One of them included, uh, one of them was for me to preach a sermon on the topic of sexual abuse in in the church, and um, the church responsibility, and the abuse culture, and whatnot. And um, so we are going to be doing that, and that's going to be two weeks from today, Um, not next week, but the following week. Um... So, parents, you just need to know that's going to be a very honest uh, discussion and sermon. Um, we will we will add extra ability for child care during that service. Um, you can decide for yourself whether you want them to be a part of that conversation. I think this is a great uh, this is a great area to bring them to 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 bring them into that conversation, have conversations with them. But you just decide as parents. We'll have ability for you to. Um, to have them be somewhere else during that. But that's going to take place two weeks from today. The and then between services, we are also going to have a combined meeting in here uh, well, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about that as well. So be in prayer about that um, as in, in the coming weeks. Uh, we, we need your prayer and guidance. Um, our passage this morning, I believe, is Acts chapter 2. I think it says in there uh, thirty. Uh, 37 through 41, I am actually only going to get through 38 this morning. So let me do 37 through 38 and then I will, um, and then I'll pray for us. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. As we come to your word Lord. We do want to pause and pray. For this whole situation. Lord we pray for those hurt. um, By. This abuse. We pray. um, For those that. The stories we don't even know. um, That are remaining silent. We pray for. Uh, The stories that have come forward, that in coming forward, you would bring them healing. We pray that they would view our church as a place um, that is safe and welcoming and eager to help them in their healing. Um, We just pray, Lord, that you would bring redemption and do what you do, which is to heal what sin has laid waste. Lord, we do pray for um, Leslie and, and the kids. We ask that you would... I comfort them, particularly today as, as this gets out on the internet and, and all the shame that goes with that. Lord, I, I pray that you'd be near to them. I thank you for their perspective. Thank you for their courage to want justice and to want those hurt to be helped. And Lord, that they have joined us in this. Thank you so much. We don't take such gospel courage for granted, so thank you for that. But we do pray you would comfort them now and be with them. We pray for righteousness as it comes to Brad, Lord, that you would, you would break him, that you would bring him to repentance. He would confess his sins and seek healing. Lord, as we turn to your word, this is your remedy to sin. This is all we have to stand on. Lord, we, this has shown once again that we cannot trust the church To be faithful, we cannot trust pastors to be faithful. We will fail, but you will not fail. The God of this church will not fail. The word upon which this church is based will not fail. And so it is fitting that we would now turn to your scriptures and ask for your holy anointing upon the preaching of your word to all who are here. Lord, I pray particularly as we come to a passage that for so many throughout the ages has been used by you to... Awaken souls and regenerate hearts and bring about conversion. Lord, I pray that, I pray that there's any here um, that come into this room not as a follower of Jesus, that they would be confronted with the good news of your gospel and that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those of us who um, have believed and yet our faith seems weak and our fears seem strong and Our doubts are persistent and our failures are many, particularly maybe we're in a season right now of of deep perpetual failure. I pray that this day um, would be a breakthrough as well and that we would receive your grace and respond with repentance. Lord, to all of us, meet us where we are as we look at your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to a passage this morning into a passage that could easily, one could easily argue is um, maybe the number one evangelistic passage perhaps in the Bible because it's, it's the first time in the New Testament that the gospel is shared and people were songed and are saved. Um, Acts 2 details the first revival in church history. And then countless times over the centuries, preachers have returned to Acts 2 for the same purpose. Revivalism has its flaws, most notably turning Christian preaching into nothing but one altar call after another, Sunday after Sunday. We know preaching is far more robust than weekly evangelism. And yet when it comes to a passage like this, which so obviously speaks to evangelism and its response then I just had the sense this week in sermon preparation, I just had the sense of, woe be it to me to try to do anything else with this passage than what it is. So no reason to reinvent the wheel when the text says what it says. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, I'm going to preach what's here. I told the first service, I'm going Billy Graham on us this morning. Um, Hoping and praying that, That what happens in our text, what we see happen on this day will happen again to you who are gathered or maybe to you listening on podcasts that what we see happen here will happen among us because we believe that the message that we see here is still true for us today. And so this is how I would like to do it. I want to challenge us all with two basic questions from the passage. What have you done and what are you going to do? Now let's just start with what we have done. Verse 37, and when they heard this, meaning Peter's sermon that we were in a couple weeks ago, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart is a good English attempt at the severity of the Greek here. Literally, it means they were broken. Um, they were undone. Very tough word to translate because of the severity of it. And so they say to Peter, they're broken, they're undone, they're cut to the heart. And so they say to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? What are we going to do? That's a cry of desperation. That is the cry of the broken hearted. And it's that question that I want to pose to us this morning as the question that we all must answer. But to do that, I want to linger here a moment and hopefully position us in such a way That we, like those in the crowd, are cut to the heart. So we're going to answer the question, what are we to do? But first, I want to get us to the point where we're crying out, what are we to do? When I ask you what you're going to do, the obvious question, the obvious response is, well, what have I done? What's the problem here? That's what the crowd in our text was wrestling with. You see, Peter had just preached a sermon with two points about Jesus. It's a little bit of review from my past sermon, but important to get us there. He just preached a sermon with two points. The first is that Jesus is risen from the dead. Remember that Peter labored to show both from Old Testament prophecy quotation and eyewitness resurrection evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is risen. And if risen, Peter concludes, then Lord. And that truth is still true to this day, 2,000 years later. There has been nothing done that can undo the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And there has been no evidence suggested, presented, that the resurrection did not happen. It's still true for us today. And here's the truth. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then Jesus is your Lord. And Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. So Jesus is, in fact, your Lord and everyone's Lord. So what are you going to do with your Lord? This brings to the second point that Peter makes in his sermon. The problem is that the question has already been answered by every one of us, whether you know it or not. The answer is a somber one. Which is Peter's second point. Peter ends his sermon with kind of this ominous indictment. He proves that Jesus is Lord. And then he ends it with this. This Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is your Lord. And you killed him. You crucified God. And then it says at this. They were cut to the heart. And cried out. Well what are we going to do? What shall we do? So the real question that they are asking is what shall we do with what we have done to our Lord? And that is the question all of us must ask as well. What will you do with what you have done with your Lord? I said in my last sermon, we are all culpable when it comes to the death of Jesus. It's it's our sin that made him bleed. The cross is a vivid display of what our sin first and foremost has done. And the reason why I say first and foremost is because our sin does a lot. It does a lot of damage. It can ruin our own life. It does ruin our own life. It can ruin the lives of others. It does ruin the lives of others. I look back and I cannot begin to recount the wake of destruction left by my sin. And yet, it is nothing compared to looking back upon the cross at the Savior bleeding. Sin is a God issue before it is a horizontal issue. That is not to diminish the horizontal devastation of sin. It is to heighten the vertical implication of sin. Sin is against God before it is against anyone else. And and, and God is angry. And you heard that right. In this age where the idea of an angry God is anathema, I am telling you, God is in fact angry. Our world says, God's not angry, God's loving. And I would say, exactly. Exactly. God is a fount of pure, holy, burning love, which is why he is angry. As I said, the investigation report came out yesterday about abusive actions that took place by a pastor of this church. I've been living in that for a year now, listening to stories, seeing the devastation, hearing people tell me how their life was ruined by the actions that took place in this church. And guess what has been one of my primary reactions to it all, anger, burning anger of what happened Happened over what happened here. Now, I want to ask you is that anger right? It is. In fact, I will not find one um, postmodern, tolerant, secularist thinker who says I should not be angry over abuse because if I were not, then it would show I do not care. Lack of anger is not a demonstration of love. It is a demonstration of indifference. Instead, righteous anger flows from righteous love. If you love what is right, you must hate what is evil. And oh, how great is God's love for what is right. Thus, oh, how great is his anger for what is evil. But what happens when you realize that you have evil. What happens when you when you who rightly judge others for their wrongs face judgment for your wrongs. It is this truth that has landed upon the crowd at Pentecost. Jesus is their lord and they killed their lord. And they're culpable. It's their sin. They have harmed the savior. And so have we. What are you going to do about it? Brothers and sisters, there is nowhere to hide from this dilemma. Peter has two premises that are inescapable. If Jesus is risen, then he is Lord of all. And if he is Lord of all, then all must ask what they have done with their Lord. And his second point is the answer to that is the cross. And it indicts us all. And we must face our indictment. You can ignore it. You can deny it. You can distract yourself from it. You can numb it out with ambitions and pleasures. You can reason your way out of it with popular philosophies and new ideas. You do what you want with it. But eventually, we must face it. He is our Lord. We have offended our Lord. Now, I would say, why not face it now? Why not let it confront you now while you can do something with it? So let it disturb you. Let it terrify you. Linger upon it until it seeps down into the depths of your heart and, and pierces it and leaves you crying out what they're crying out here. What am I supposed to do? What shall we do? Let's answer that. We've seen what we've done. Now, what are you going to do with what you have done? First, it must be said the answer could rightfully be said that there is nothing to be done. God's love for what is right demands that you face consequences for what you have done wrong. That could and should be the end of the story. They cry. What shall we do? And Peter could have said, nothing. I've got nothing for you. There is nothing to be done. What's done is done. You have sinned against Jesus, the Lord Jesus. I'm sorry, I've got nothing for you. But that's not the answer Peter gives to them that day. The good news that has invaded the world... That he is proclaiming for the first time is that there is an answer to the seemingly hopeless cry, what shall we do? Let's watch him answer in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. His answer is twofold. Repenting and receiving. First, repent. Peter says to them, repent. Now, that's a familiar religious word to all of us, but it is loaded with implications. Literally, in the Greek, it means to change your mind. But as you study the way Scripture uses it, you realize it is much more than just an epiphany. It is a fundamental reorientation. A contemporary word that is probably more faithful to the meaning is conversion. To repent is to be converted to an entirely new way of being. We who once were indifferent to what we have done to God, perhaps even boasted in what we have done to God, we now despise what we have done. At the deepest level, we hate it. We don't want to do it anymore. We are ashamed of it. We are convicted by it. We are broken over it. And we who hated God now hate the thought of hating him. If you want to know what that looks like, our Old Testament reading was there for a reason. Psalm 51. It's the most articulate, personal statement of repentance, maybe in the Bible where David is confronted with his sin and he becomes, as the language in our text says, cut to the heart, undone, and cries out. That's what repentance looks like. It's not just epiphany, it's not just a new idea, it is against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now please purge me and cleanse me and restore the joy of my salvation and so forth. This is repentance. So we repent, but repentance is is not novel to the Christian faith. Every religion begins with repentance. I would say every philosophy begins with repentance. It is a conversion that leads to a new orientation, and that includes the Jewish audience of Acts 2. They were very accustomed to the language of repentance. But what is unconventional about Peter's words in our passage is the second half. You see, religion says repent and then get to work making amends for what you have done. Repent and here are the rules that you now must follow. But Peter says something completely revolutionary. Repent and then he gives a passive command. Look at it. Repent and be baptized. Receive baptism. I fear that modern interpretations of baptism have unwittingly subverted its meaning. Uh, You see, to many of us, baptism is still something we do. It's still viewed that way in in many evangelical circles. It is our declaration. It is our statement. It is our action. But the whole point of Christian baptism is that it is God's declaration. It is God's action. It is a rich imagery of what God has done. Baptism is something we receive, not something we do. Baptism was nothing new to Jewish culture, but according to Jewish teaching, it was something we do. It was an active Act of repentance—an active right, not a passive right. They would baptize themselves as a way of cleansing themselves. They would have all these ceremonial washings and whatnot to cleanse themselves, particularly in preparation of encountering something holy. So it's the symbolism is they're making, they're cleaning themselves up. This is what John was doing. His was called the baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah, for the Holy One who's coming. But here, Peter fundamentally changes the meaning of baptism into a passive rite. Peter says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of what? In the name of your repentance? In the name of your religion? In the name of your obedience? No, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the first time. The world hears the gospel articulated in its fullest and final form. And it's this. This is the twist. This is the revolutionary concept that Peter is unveiling to them when he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus that you just crucified. Now I'm asking you to be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of sins. This is what he's This is what he's announcing. What we have done to our Lord Jesus has become what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Remember what Peter has said, Jesus is Lord, you killed your Lord. But Peter proclaims good news, the gospel, that the cross is not just what we have done to Jesus, but what Jesus has now done for us. So God is angry, what shall we do? Answer is nothing, for God has done it. He himself has borne the anger that we deserve. Our sins led to the cross, but the cross has led to the forgiveness of our sins so that God can rightly satisfy his anger over sin while at the same time forgiving those who have sinned. It remains the greatest news this world has ever known. Christian reorientation is not repent of what you have done and do better. It is repent of what you have done and receive what Jesus has done. And if you are willing to receive him, then you will have him. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will, still passive language, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have spent so much time talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit thus far in Acts, that I'm not going to review it here. You can go back and listen to sermons. Suffice to say that the Holy Spirit is viewed as the fullness of Jesus to all of us. He is the agent of Christ's presence and promise, personalized to every follower of Jesus. Simply put, in receiving the Holy Spirit, we receive Jesus Both the fullness of his promise and the fullness of his presence. We get Jesus. So summing up, the glorious news that Peter has announced to the world for the first time. And I now now announce to you once again. Jesus is your Lord and you killed your Lord. What are you going to do? Repent of what you have done to Jesus. Receive what Jesus has done for you. And you will have the fullness of his forgiveness. Indeed, the fullness of Jesus himself. The blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest news the world has ever known. Now, application. First and foremost, how can I preach a passage that when first preached led to 3,000 conversions and has since led to countless other conversions throughout the centuries without asking the Lord to do the same today whether here or listening online so first and foremost application to those who um, certainly to those who would not who would not identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ but I'll include in that those who would maybe nominally culturally identify themselves as followers but it It's just not a big deal in your life. I want to be as clear as I can with you because I think I owe it to you and because Peter was certainly as clear as he could be with the original audience. I believe with all my heart that Peter's ancient sermon in Acts 2 is true for you this very day. Jesus really is your Lord. And there really is no other. There are countless religious claims out there. There are countless philosophies and worldviews out there. And yes, I do believe that Jesus alone emerges as true. Why can I so confidently say that? Because Jesus alone is risen from the dead. He is your Lord, whether you want him or not. You're stuck with him as God. You can deny it. You can distract yourself. You can hide from Him. It doesn't matter. Jesus is inescapably your Lord. And friends, your Lord is love. And because your Lord is love, your Lord is angry. Angry over all wrongs that have ever been done. And yes, that includes yours. You cannot demand justice and then ask to be the one exception to justice. Everyone loves the idea of justice in our day. Justice, justice, justice. Until we must face justice. We are not allowed to expect justice. Except for me. Jesus is Lord. You have sinned against your Lord. What are you going to do? I hope that question disturbs you to the uppermost, that it hounds and haunts you until you have nowhere to run. May it pierce you to your innermost being until you are left, as the text says, cut to the heart. And I will tell you the sign that you are cut to the heart. It is that I am no longer asking you what you are going to do, but that you yourself are crying out, what am I going to do? I'll tell you when it's cut your heart is when the preacher's no longer up here saying you should be asking this question and you yourself like those in the crowd are saying what am I to do? And this is what you are to do. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't have to be angry with you. Jesus doesn't want to be angry with you. He wants to bear his own anger on your behalf. It really comes down to this. Who gets the anger of God? You cannot demand that he not be angry for to do so would demand that he not love. And I'm sorry, he's too loving. So who gets God's anger? You can bear it. Or God can bear it on your behalf. Why in heaven's name. Literally in heaven's name. Would you not trade his anger for his forgiveness. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Not in the next life stage. Boy we play that game. Next life stage I'll get to it. No, no, no. Today. Come to your senses. Repent and receive so that you could be assured that your Lord is not angry with you but has forgiven you and even more than that is now with you and for you. But to those who have had their Acts 2 moment and I'm assuming that is the majority of us here who have repented and received I say this to you it remains true for you. There is no asterisk beside for the forgiveness of sins in your Bible. As if there are exceptions to this clause. And you're the exception. It is what it is. Your sins are forgiven. And forgotten. And God is not angry with you. He is pleased with you. Because you have received the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of Christ, over which the Heavenly Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says that now over you. You're forgiven. It's forgotten. He is pleased with you. It is strange to me that if there was someone in here today that was cut to the heart like an axe to... Repented and received Jesus for the forgiveness of sins for the very first time. I fear they would leave here with greater assurance of forgiveness than some of the most seasoned saints among us. And the reason why is so many of us share our stories that way. The assurance, the overwhelmingness of his love and delight in the hour I first believed. I want that back. Isn't that interesting? That someone this day could believe upon Jesus for the first time and be more assured of forgiveness and love than the seasoned saint who has walked with him for decades. Why is that? Because we believe Acts 2 is the pattern of conversion to the Christian life rather than the Christian life itself. You're going to have a hard time finding that paradigm in scripture. Why do you think every week in our liturgy we confess our sins, repent of our sins, and receive the assurance of forgiveness of sins? Because it's not just for conversion, but for life. So let me ask you some point blank questions. I want to do an exercise with you. And I I want you to actually answer them out loud. Yes, Presbyterians, I'm going to ask you to talk. All you got to say is yes. Can you handle a yes? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) You're allowed to say no too, but it's a yes or no. Um, and in fact, I'm going, old, I'm going old school. I told you I'm going to Billy Graham us this morning. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I meant that. Don't laugh at me. Knowing everything that you have done, every failure you have committed, whether it Be the one from many years ago that you can't forget, or the one from last night. Every sin, every burden, every shame, everything you bring into this room, I want to ask you some questions from the text. Are you cut to the heart for the ways you have sinned against your Lord? Do you repent? Do you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Amen, look up. Doesn't that feel good? Just to say it again? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Now look at me. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by the authority of God's infallible word, I say to you with sure and certain confidence, you are forgiven of your sins. And you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Lord, we've heard it preached. Now speak to us in the sacrament. This is your body given. This is your blood shed. Feed our souls with the nourishment of your forgiveness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.